We're going to take a, a break from our series in Revelation. We invite you to come back next Sunday and to hear uh, the next part in our series. We'll be in Revelation chapter 2 and looking actually at the letter to the uh, Ephesian church, the section to the Ephesian church there. Uh, so looking forward to that. But we're taking a break today from Mother's Day as we normally do. Uh, and uh, I always love giving Mother Day's, Mother's Day messages. And probably uh, of the past... 15 years or so, um, just about every Mother's Day, I've brought a message to encourage moms and just to thank moms, um, and, and I love to take the opportunity to do that uh, because moms serve in so many ways. But this morning I felt led to actually address a, a topic related to motherhood, but, but not quite the same as other times. I want to talk about the topic of biblical manhood and womanhood. The reason I chose to do that on Mother's Day, obviously, is because it's Mother's Day, but also because this is a, a really important topic right now in our culture. And just as uh, one of your pastors, as your lead pastor, I thought it was important to uh, strengthen and equip you in understanding of this important topic. Uh, and I trust as we go through it, you'll, you'll see if you don't already understand just the importance of it and, and its function for us. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, sections in the, those chapters. We'll look uh, briefly at Ephesians 5 as well. And, and we'll, uh, looking at these verses in these first three chapters uh, is something actually that Jesus himself did when, when the topic of marriage, uh, biblical manhood and womanhood related to marriage came up. He pointed back to Genesis 1-3. to The Apostle Paul as well, when he referred back uh, about roles of men and women in the church, went back to Genesis 1-3. to So that's where we're going to go. I'm just going to take good counsel and do the same. Uh, we need to know about this important topic of what the Bible says about men and women. Uh, the, the title, and I didn't draw that in case you're wondering, the title of uh, the message is Gender Wars. We're just going to look at the issue of manhood and womanhood and particularly how they can be opposed to each other or there can be confusion uh, on this issue. Uh, and there is, there's a lot of confusion in our culture on this topic and uh, perhaps in our own lives as well. Alexander Stark, Pastor Alexander Stark, uh, said about 18 years ago the following. He said, one of the most significant changes in human history has occurred during the past 40 years. It is the gender revolution. I think we have this uh, to pr uh, project, this quote. In the words of historian William Manchester, the erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. That was said 18 years ago, before a lot of the changes that, uh, that have come along since then. This is an important topic and there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of things going on in our culture. And we as salt and light, we uh, as those who have been rescued from darkness, brought into light, brought into relationship with the Lord, and instructed in His good ways, need to understand these things. And, and we need to be strengthened in these things that we might be salt and light, that we might have influence in our culture for good. There's a great need to understand these truths. And, and to avoid the choices that are out there. There are, there are choices on either side uh, that are dangerous. There's the mire of male chauvinism on one side and the morass of modern feminism on the other. And we're called to walk down this path of biblical truth, avoiding either. And, and 
prowling through these different swamps of chauvinism and feminism is this monster of gender confusion that is consuming mass quantities of people. And these truths and this confusion strikes at the very foundations of what it means to be human, what it means to be a man or a woman, and why there's any difference between the two. Understanding these truths has an effect on everything about us. It has an effect on how we perceive ourselves as humans. How we perceive relationships. How we perceive the family. How we perceive marriage. How we perceive work. How we perceive society. How we perceive God. And how we portray the image of God is connected to our understanding of gender. So we're going to dig into these texts and we're just going to mine them a little bit and think about them a little bit and look at truth. I think you'll see as we go through it, I'll tell you up front, that I think uh, it's clear that God has made us, male and female, to cooperatively reflect His glorious image. God has made us, male and female, to cooperatively reflect His glorious image. That's His design. That's the bottom line truth here. And there's things that come from that. Now, the reality we'll look at it is that uh, that's His design. We are called to be equal but different. But we've fallen. But there's good news we'll get to. He's rescued us from that fallenness. So as we prepare to look at Scripture, let's pray. And ask God to bless the proclamation and teaching of His Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, how Your Word guides us, how Your Word informs us, how Your Word shapes us, how Your Word rescues us, how Your Word strengthens us, Lord. And Father, this is a topic that is controversial in our culture. Um, and I ask You to help us understand it. And I pray You'd help us to be strengthened in it. We would see its truth. We would see its beauty and goodness as well. And we would love this truth. We would love these truths and we would love living by grace according to them. And we'd be strengthened to love and respect our neighbors and friends, but to look for opportunities in time to reflect these truths and even to discuss these truths. Strengthen us now, for these are Your truths and we are dependent and needy. And we ask You through this, Lord, to build us up. To build up families and marriages. To build up motherhood and fatherhood in our church. But not just that, Lord. That You would build up what it is to be respectively man or woman, and what it is to be human in these truths. We look to You, Lord, Your blessing. We seek You. We thank You, Lord, for how You're going to teach us. Give us ears to hear as You teach us from Your Word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 1, just excerpts there, and then Genesis 2, and later we'll look at 3 and, and elsewhere too. So let me read it from Genesis 1. This is the account of the creation given to us to understand what and why uh, God was doing uh, in creation. And it says in chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In verse 31, And God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Jumping to chapter 2, verse 18. A parallel account that kind of details more what went on. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Just these two sections of Scripture from Genesis say some pretty radical things. Some really amazing things. It teaches us that we're made in the image of God. The infinite glorious God who, who is beyond knowing, beyond perceiving, is reflected through us. Through humans. It's amazing. It's radical to think that the infinite glorious One is, is reflected through us. That we are the image of God. And that, that truth of the image of God goes throughout the entire Bible. It's fundamental to what it is to be human. But it's interesting that it's not just reflected in being a man or a woman or, or something else. It's, it's really reflected in, in this image of God and humanity is reflected in making us male and female. God's image is reflected. It's portrayed through being male and female alongside each other. It's radical actually in Genesis, and again throughout the whole Bible, women are placed as equals with men. Now that's not radical to us, modern Americans, but for pretty much all of history and every other culture, it is radical. And the Bible is consistent in that. Way before it was popular, way before any idea of, of you know, women's equality and so forth, Genesis 1 and 3 and the storyline in the Bible portrayed this. That we are equals. The truth of the equality of men and women is reflected here and actually throughout the whole Bible. Jesus treats women this way. His treatment of women was radical. He worked with them. He gladly received their support. And He treated them as equal daughters of Abraham. The Bible is consistent. Galatians 3 tells us, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. By the way, notice it uses the word sons there. But then it goes on to say, for as many as you, uh, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse doesn't mean that, that in Jesus He abolishes gender. What it means is you are equals. You are all children. Sons of God. That, the word sons is inclusive. It's children of God. Male and female together. You are 
co-heirs and equals. That's radical and that's important to understand. And it's important to practice actually too. That's truth in the Scripture that we are equal and we are to treat each other as equals. So any notion of superiority of one sex over the other is biblically unwarranted and contrary to Scripture. So there's no room in the Bible for male chauvinism. None. Never has been. There's no room in the Bible for feminism either in the sense of superiority of women over men. The gender wars, the battle of the sexes, is opposed to Scripture and is actually a blasphemy of God's created order because He made us in His image male and female together as equals. So if you harbor any sense, if any of us harbor any sense of superiority over the opposite sex, we're displeasing God. So guys, you're called to treat your sister, your wife, your mother, as full equals. They are equal, equally made in the image of God, and in partnership, appropriate partnership to the context that you're in, you are called to image God together as male and female. And to honor them as such, as co-heirs in Christ, if they're believers as well. Women are undeniable equals. So, so maybe this Mother's Day, that would be one way you could honor your mom. It's just saying, you know, if, if it's your wife, dear, you're, in every way, you're, you're my equal. You're not my equivalent. We're going to get to that. But you're my equal before God. And I'm so grateful for you. So there's ways where we can honor that and live it out. Scripture teaches us that. Ladies, you are to see men as your equals. If there's any hint of treating, if, if you're married, your husband as a Homer Simpson or thinking he's just, the, you know, there's this idea out there that men are like cavemen. They have ba- very base needs, you know, food, sleep, and sex, and that's all they need. They're just these simpletons, you know. There's that idea that's popular uh, out there. And that violates this as well, doesn't it? We are equals before God, imaging God together. And so let us be a church where, where the equality of the sexes is celebrated where women and men are honored as women and men as co-equals let us be a church where where we see genesis 1 and 3 celebrated and how we regard each other how we talk about each other what we think but we are different equal equal in worth equal before god equal in the weight of our role together, does not mean equivalent. doesn't mean it's the same. We are different. And that's very clear in, the, in this text. We, we see in Genesis 1-3 through that we are different. And, and, and what's going on in creation, in what we see here, is God is, is creating. He's creating um, these spheres. The sky, the water, the land. And then He fills these spheres with creatures. Um, He populates them. There's life. And then He sets men and women over these things. We are set over over creation to rule, to co-rule, to be co-regents over creation. But as men and women, and there's, there's differences here. Though we are equal before the Lord, there's differences in how it happens. There's differences in our roles. He sets the first man in this world garden paradise 
And that's in Genesis 2 as it kind of gives the details of the story. And there's no helper that's suitable for him. So God creates for the man, the, the male, a helper suitable for him. He makes the man out of the dust of the earth, breathes life into the man, calls him to live in the garden, and then he makes the woman out of the man. So she is second in creation order, and she's derived from the man versus from the ground directly. There's a difference there. The original readers would have noticed it immediately. There's a difference. So they are equals, male and female, but they're not made the same. They're not the same in the order. And the call to, to, to tend the garden, the call to take dominion and so forth, is, is the prime responsibility of the man. The man is given the command not to eat the forbidden fruit. The woman comes as a helper alongside the man in these things. Now, the woman bears a responsibility, but she is a, she is a helper. He is primarily responsible to fulfill God's mandate, but he can't do it alone. He does it as the leader, but they do it together. The man is prominent, but not alone. He's responsible, but not independent. Now, he names the woman, so there's a, there's a leadership there, but it's not independent. Does that make sense? Does that make sense from that storyline? That storyline isn't there because it's a quaint story or simply because it's true. That's to instruct us. To understand God's ideas making male and female. He wants us to image Him. He wants the man to take leadership. He wants the man to bear responsibility for, for an initiative towards God's mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to, to image God throughout the whole earth. And He calls the, the woman to do that with Him. And certainly that has application in marriage, but it actually has application in every arena of life. For if you study the rest of the Bible, you will see it reflected throughout for all different roles, all different situations. Whether someone's married or not, whether someone is in church leadership or not, in every aspect you'll see a consistent reflection of that original design and order. Men are called to lead, to take initiative. Women are called with their gifting to empower that leadership. Now, I'll get into this a little more, but it doesn't mean that women don't lead in any way. And it doesn't mean that men never empower others. But at the core, there's this orientation. There's, there's this call of God to, to do that. And they are to do it side by side. Matthew Henry said, in speaking of how the man, how the woman is formed out of the man, says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him. We have this to project. Neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him but out of His side to be equal with Him. Under His arm to be protected by Him. And near His heart to be loved by Him. That's the picture. That's the picture reflected throughout Scripture. The woman is taken from the man to come alongside the man and together to image God, to fulfill His purposes. The fall of man did not negate this. It only distorted it. And the redemption we have in Christ, which we'll talk about in a little bit, didn't move beyond this design, but restored it. Guys, that's what Scripture teaches. And, and in many ways, that's what it is to be men and women. Men are responsible before God for sacrificial and loving leadership. Women are responsible for God to support, complement, and empower male leadership. There is to be an aspect of masculinity and femininity in 
in our lives as respectively men and women in all that we do. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the answer to here is traditional roles. I'm advocating biblical truth here. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't think there's anything unbiblical about men who are nurses or, or women who are construction workers. I'm not saying that. But masculinity and femininity has at its core this idea of men taking responsibility. Using their position and power, their abilities to protect and provide and to lead. To take initiative. To innovate. To realize that the buck stops here as a man and and certainly we're called to do that collectively, but, but I'm called to responsibility as a man. That's a consistent biblical aspect of masculinity starting right in Genesis 1 and 2. And for women, there's this aspect of femininity that responds to this leadership and empowers it and enables it. And, it's, and male leadership is not to be competent by itself. It's through the empowerment of women and their giftedness and their ability that men can be successful in their leadership. There's to be a, a responsiveness in a coming alongside and saying, how can I help that? Oh, here's some feedback on that. I have some ideas. Why don't we try this with what you're saying? So there's a sharpening of that leadership. There's an enabling of that leadership. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying because there are many different traits we display. There's many, much overlap there. But the biblical truth here and then the biblical example we see it, it would say that these are the, the, the characteristics that Define masculinity and femininity. And all that we do. And that's what we're called to. Now guys, this is not popular, is it? And maybe some of you are thinking, oh wow, I don't like this. A lot of people have a hard time with the idea that men and women are equal but different. And that there are actual differences that we're called to. There are many Christians who feel this way. There are many Christians who, who and Bible scholars who, who say that, well, there's maybe some difference, but it's pretty much a cultural construct. It's all made up by culture. And in Scripture, when it talks about it, it's just because back then, you know, that was their culture. And so it's just kind of condescending to that culture to kind of help them understand. There's kind of, in many ways, the momentum, even in Christian scholarship, is towards this view of, of diminishing the differences between male and female. There are different places on the spectrum in that view, the, the general idea that men and women are, are not only equal before the Lord, but equal in function is uh, entitled egalitarianism. So the word for, uh, meaning, from the word meaning equal. So egalitarian view is that there's equal. We're equal. Now, generally, that, it means equal in all different arenas, but in terms of gender issues, egalitarianism says that men and women are fully equal. And there's gradations of that. And then the other view that I'm proposing, and I hope I'm defending from Scripture, is called the complementary view, the complementarianism, which says we complement each other. That we're not, we're equal in worth, but we're different in function, and it's a, it's a complementary function. In this basic biblical masculinity and femininity, we come together and, and we are successful together in imaging God. That's the complementarian view. At one point, Peg and I were joking about the complementarian view, and I and I said, whatever she compliments, I do it. Whatever she doesn't compliment, I don't do it. That's our complementarian view. Hopefully it's more than that. But there has been a major shift in evangelicalism in, in, in Bible churches, churches that believe in the authority of the Bible, in this area. And you might think, okay, well, why? Well, I mean, why, why do we care about this? Why, why, why talk about it? 
And well, I'd take a Mother's Day to talk about it. I was hoping to bring my mom here and just have hear a nice, encouraging message. Why, why is this important? Well, first off, God cares about this. The reason we should care about it is because God cares about it. If He put it in Genesis 1 and 2 at the very beginning, and it's consistent in Scripture, never seen contrary in Scripture, then maybe He cares about it. And maybe He knows better than we do on this issue. And maybe we should care about it if God cares about it. Maybe we should take note. If this, is, if this is God's idea, then maybe it should be our idea as well. Maybe we should learn more about biblical masculinity and femininity. Maybe we should take time to think through this. How does it work itself out in our lives? God cares about it. That's motivation enough. Also though, the authority of Scripture is at stake in this debate. Because if the Scripture's clear and consistent meaning throughout all of its books, and up until very recently understood pretty much, pretty much unanimously on this issue, if it can be reinterpreted as merely a cultural condescension of God or something like that, we're on slippery slope, aren't we? Because who's to say that it's just all cultural condescension, right? Maybe Jesus really didn't do what He did. Just a myth, because God understood we needed some hopeful stuff, you know? Humanity just needed some hope to kind of get us by. And then the whole Bible starts to slip off the slippery slope. The authority of Scripture needs to be retained, and we need to wrestle with these issues. Guys, I'm not, I'm not a complimentarian because you know, I just kind of grew up that way. I would probably naturally be very comfortable with egalitarian views in many ways. And there's a lot of compelling reasons for it. The, the ability of women as we look around. The competency of women. They can do most of the things men can do. And sometimes better. But that's not why we choose these things. I choose this because Scripture says it. And I have to submit my life and my thinking to Scripture. We all do. The Bible is God's Word. And God is infinitely brilliant and holy and good. And so let's be faithful to interpret the Word and apply it as we see it. This issue, if we're not clear on it, will create the Bible, make the Bible into a living document that just kind of morphs into whatever we want it to mean. We should submit to the Word. That is a huge reason why this is important. But also, probably most importantly, the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God. The, what God wants to do in showing His goodness and His greatness to us and through us, that's at stake in this. Why do I say that? Well, how does the story begin? God makes creation, right? He makes these spheres. He fills them. And He puts man over them. And He wants man to reflect His goodness, right? To image Him. And how does He choose to do that? Male and female. Masculine and feminine together. Cooperatively imaging His glory. So if we compromise on our understanding of biblical masculinity and femininity, we are compromising the glory of God. This is God's design to image His glory as men and women come together cooperatively in all the different contexts. Yes, marriage. Yes, in the church. Yes, in family. But in society and friendship as well. The Bible doesn't say, you know, when, when you get outside of marriage, stop being biblically masculine or feminine. Just be kind of gender neutral. No, the, the storyline and all the, all the context reflected in Scripture, it's consistent. You see consistent masculinity and femininity affirmed or the lack thereof not, uh, 
not a friend. This is about the glory of God. And it's about all aspects of life. And so guys, we are to express our masculinity by taking responsibility, showing initiative, making wise innovations, using power and ability to bless, not dominate. Ladies, you're you're to express biblical femininity by gladly responding to male leadership and heartfelt support, using your giftedness, giftedness to enable initiatives, sharpening innovations, using relational networks and and your multiple abilities to empower initiatives. Again, they're not the only traits we demonstrate. And and there is overlap in many ways, but but these orientations and, and a really weight of emphasis perhaps is the difference on these particulars is what makes us what expresses our masculinity and femininity. Furthermore, the triune God Himself is the ultimate example of all this of equal but different. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal. They're all fully God. They're one. But they are different in their roles. They're actually not different in their abilities. They're all fully God. They're all fully able to do everything each other does. Isn't that interesting? Because sometimes the argument for egalitarianism is, is saying, well, women can do everything men can do, so why shouldn't they? The Son can do everything the Father does. Holy Spirit can do everything the Son and the Father do. They're all God, fully God, but they don't do the same thing. The Trinity has an economy. It, what they do, how they function, that's different. The Father oversees things. The Father plans. Now, in, in conjunction with the Son and the Holy Spirit, we know as believers that, and this invitation is for all, though, as believers that before time began, He set His affection on us. And He said, I love this one. And I want to rescue this one. I, I know all that's going to happen. We've planned it out. And I, my heart goes out with this infinite love towards this one. And the Son says, Father, I'll do Your will because this one is going to fall into sin. They're going to fall into rebellion against You. They're going to turn from Your holy good ways. They're going to be caught up in the insanity of a separate life from You, the Creator of all and Sustainer of all. So I'm going to go and I'm going to become a man and I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to obey You. I'm going to love You. I'm going to love others. And then I'm going to lay out that life. I'm going to give it out for others. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to die for sin. I'm going to pay the penalty that they deserve to pay for their rebellion so that they can be forgiven. And as they put their faith in Me, they can be joined to You. Father, I'm glad to do that for You. And the Holy Spirit says in time, Father and and Son, I love You. And I love those You love. So now I'm going to bring this truth to bear in this person's life and I'm going to open their eyes up to understand and to believe. And so there's new life. There's regeneration and faith. And all that the Father has planned starts to come to bear to that person. All that the Son has done is applied to that person. And now there's new life. And now together they keep us in the Lord. That wonderful relationship is available to any and all, by the way, who would come. And if you have not yet trusted Him, come to Him and His great love for you. That you might be included in, in this amazing family. So the Trinity works this way, Right? God Himself works this way. It's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. The Son is not any less glorious than the Father or the Spirit. The Holy Spirit Spirit Himself is called, just like 
Eve and women are called in Genesis 2 a helper. Scripture calls us to this good way. Now, that's the truth. The reality is, guys, that we fall short, don't we? We struggle with this. The fall of man uh, has affected us. It's affected how we work this out. It's interesting to look at that interchange in Genesis 3. Actually, if we could project that. I just want to read the, the, what goes on as Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They've disobeyed Him. Uh, God told Adam to not eat of this, the tree, the forbidden fruit. And Eve in Genesis 3 is attracted to the fruit. Adam is absent. And that absence is not just like there by chance. It's pointing to something. He was called to be the leader, right? He's called to be the one who he received the command and the mandate. He should have been with his wife instructing and so forth, but he's absent. He's advocating his role. And so Eve gets tempted and she takes the forbidden fruit. She does what she knows is wrong, but is deceived by the serpent. And then she gives some to her husband. She leads her husband into that. And he's responsible though. He he abdicates his responsibility. And then they fall from this wonderful, beautiful relationship with God. And with with them falls really all of creation. And so God comes as He does pursuing fallen man. Thank God that He never gives up on us. He pursues Adam and Eve and, and He pursues mankind throughout history. And this is what it says in Genesis 3, verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, uh, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And God responds to them. He says to the woman, He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So there's a curse on Adam and Eve as a result of this. And ever since, the sexes have been at war. And we have struggled with gender issues and gender confusion and gender conflicts. It's interesting what he says to the woman. He says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. That's in verse 16. That word desire is the same word used later on in speaking of sin's desire for Cain. The same word. And in the past, people maybe interpreted that as basically you know, Eve desired a loving relationship with her husband, instead of giving her a loving relationship, he dominated her. That's not what it's saying. The desire is like sin's desire to rule Cain. The woman, the woman de- will desire to rule the husband. And what will happen is the husband will dominate the woman. So that's the conflict that's introduced in the curse. And then the man who's called to be the leader, the man who's called to, to lovingly lead his wife, is now frustrated in his role He's to lead. He's to take initiative. He's to take dominion. And now in his role, cursed is the ground. Cursed is your farming. By the sweat of your brow, it's going to be difficult for you. The result of the fall is to frustrate these God-given roles and to bring conflict into them. 
The woman finds herself under a frustrated or unfaithful man and wants to take over. And his response to that is, is he dominates or he, he abandons. And isn't that what we see, guys? Isn't that what we see throughout humanity? Isn't that what we see at times in our own lives? Do, we, do you guys ever see anything like this in your relationships? With, if you're married or outside of marriage as well, just men and women? All around us, we see absent or abusive men, right? Men who are overwhelmed by the call. I'm frustrated. Things are difficult. I'm supposed to do all these things and it doesn't work. I give up. It's impossible to be a good husband. It's impossible to be a good dad. It's impossible to be a good employee. So I give up. I abandon. And that abandonment can look different ways, right? It can be abandonment of actually leaving, disappearing, going to live in another city and never being seen again. It can be abandonment into things like alcohol or pornography. Guys give up. They abandon. The other side of it is, and sometimes mixed together, is there's abuse. I got this woman I'm supposed to love and lead and I'm tired of it and I just want her to stop that. And there's abuse that goes on. We see that. And there's all different levels of this. We see women who can live in fear in such situations and seek to perhaps manipulate or take things into their own hands in, in ways that are not healthy and good. We see it lived out in, in just the vices of our culture. Boy, pornography, which is so prevalent, is, is a picture, evidence of this terrible fall. Pornography where, where men treat women as objects, not made in the image of God, but really as an object. Which, so if you, if you violate the image of God, that's essentially what murder is, right? It's when you, when you disrespect the image of God. So, so when men treat women as objects, it's, it's akin to murder. This serious sin of pornography, treating women as sex objects, merely to satisfy their men's sexual hunger. And it can happen the other way around as well. It's part of the fruit of this. It's interesting too how, the, how in, in our culture, I mean, the, just the, the sad irony is our culture, our culture allows pornography and, and, but then sees the terrible aspects of it, but then doesn't do a whole lot to, to portray the, the, the beauty of women in a godly way. So women are portrayed in, in ways that highlight their, their physical features and treats them like objects. And that's celebrated by some of the same people who would be opposed to pornography. So, we, so beauty gets confused. And to be tantalizing is considered beautiful. And now it's, it's the battle of the sexes, isn't it? Right? So I'm going to control men because I know when I, when I do this, I can kind of get their attention and so forth. That's part of what can go on. It's not my job to get into everybody's heart and mind on this, but we see this. The, just the brokenness that's come between men and women. And the brokenness that comes even understanding basic gender. We're at the place now in our culture where the, the basic understanding of male and female now is confused. People are questioning what maleness and femaleness is. And then all, all of the sexual practices that follow with that. There's a brokenness that's out there. There's a brokenness from the fall. And there's, there's biological brokenness in this too. We need to acknowledge that. There's rare cases of biological androgyny where, where 
gender, biblical, biological gender is indeterminate, about 0.1% of the society. So part of the brokenness is, is genetic defects and things like this that happen. That's out there. But there's also brokenness of sexual preference that's out there. People who, for whatever reason, have a particular sexual preference that's not in line with God's design. God made us male and female. God calls us to express our maleness and our femaleness. And God calls us to express our sexuality actually in a very narrow application within marriage. One woman, one man for life. But there's a brokenness out there. Anywhere from 1% to 5%, perhaps as high as 10%, though that number I think is high, of the population would see themselves as essentially same-sex attracted. What's interesting to note with that, so it's somewhere between 1 and 5 probably, if you ask the general population what percent of Americans are homosexual, uh, the number that gets reported is 25%. So people, our, our society thinks it's one out of four is same, essentially same-sex oriented. But the real stats are it's more like one-tenth of that. That's important to get. Because that's where we live. And that's what people think. And our orientation should be a number of things. One is... God's design is male and female. That's God's original good design. It's not anything else. And yet we live in a broken world. And there's brokenness. And for whatever reason, people can be broken in this. They could just biologically be broken. They could be broken through their choices. But God's standard is good and it it remains so we stay committed to that. But we also recognize these people are made in the image of God. They're made to reflect His glory. And so we're to be respectful and compassionate and patient and understand that we all deal with this brokenness. We all live in a broken, fallen world. We all struggle. We all struggle with God's design, don't we? We may not be same-sex attracted, but but do we fulfill what what the Bible calls us to do in terms of biblical masculinity and femininity? No, we all struggle. We all sin. We all fall short. And so we relate compassionately. But we don't compromise truth in that. I want, and I think this church is a place where someone coming from that background and even that that conviction would come and be loved and respected. And they would know our love and respect for them. But I also believe that we would be a place that in time, when it's right, would speak the truth and say this is God's design. There's a narrow sexual ethic in Scripture. and, And God's Design is for one woman, one man in marriage for all of life. But also, we would want to convey that for those of us who struggle with that, who struggle with God's design, there's redemption. There's redemption. There's rescue. There's power. There's the ability in Christ to... to to receive forgiveness and and have power to live a new life in a new way and begin to model in different ways His original intent. Christ has come and He died on the cross for our forgiveness so that we could be forgiven, that we could belong to Him, that we could be free to, to be redeemed. And He died that we might be united with the Trinity and understand intimacy and understand what God calls us to that, that our relationships, our human relationships, ultimately mirror the relationship of the Trinity. And we are called to be a family together, a church family. And for those of us who are called to marriage, we're called to image in marriage this intimacy, this complementarity, 
He rescues us. He comes. He died on the cross. He rose again. He sent His Spirit that we might be forgiven, that we might have hope, that we might begin to live in these things. And so we can say in Ephesians 5.22-33, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sound familiar? The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This new life in Christ empowers us, and this is applied to marriage, to live biblical masculinity and biblical femininity out in the power of the Holy Spirit by the Gospel. To trust God. If you're a woman, to trust the Lord. He loves you. He's given Himself for you. He's going to work everything for your good. Don't give in to fear. Trust Him. Trust Him to use your husband and and orient your life to empower your husband versus taking leadership away from your husband. Let him struggle a little bit. Pray for him. See what you can do to empower him. That's what submission looks like. It's coming under his leadership. It's not doing it in a doormat way. It's doing it in a dynamic way. But having a heart, I want to make him successful. I'm going to use my gifts to, to encourage him Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loves the church. Ah, That's a tall order. But it's possible by Christ in you to take initiative, to take responsibility, to trust God. You may feel overwhelmed. At times, I can feel overwhelmed. I probably feel overwhelmed every day, actually. I wake up overwhelmed. You like that? I can come out of a nice dream and then I wake up and I start thinking, oh, wow. I got this to do today, I got this to do today, then this is going on here, and then this is happening, and, no, and I want to go back to sleep. There's a difficulty in life. There's a challenge in life. We live in a broken world. And, and guys, it can be overwhelming when you're called to be responsible. Again, we are all called to be responsible, but as men particularly, we're called to, to lead. And so what do I do in the morning when I'm overwhelmed? I remember Jesus crucified and risen. I'm forgiven for all my sins. All my shortcomings today are forgiven in Him. He loves me. He's given His life for me. He's with me and for me today. So I can face the overwhelming tasks and things that I can't do on my own with courage. And I can say, Lord, help me love my wife. If I live in the overwhelmed thing and and Peg comes alongside and her giftedness is like, honey, uh, we need this to get done and this to get done. She's just good at remembering things I don't remember. If I'm living in my overwhelmness, what do I do when she says that? I respond. For me, usually in anger. And, um, and my anger is never... Uh, it's probably hard to detect for anyone but my wife, but she can like even just the eyebrow going up or something like that. She's like, you're angry, aren't you? You're upset. And, and, and that's what I do. I'm overwhelmed. But when I can remember Christ and live in Christ, I can listen and love and lead. And I can invite her in to participate in what we're doing. We share a lot of what we do in roles. That's the difference Christ makes in our lives. And that applies not just to marriage, it applies to all of life. If you're a single, you're called to these things as well. Young men, you are called to be leaders 
You are the future leaders of this church. I trust God that the next generation pastors will be raised up in large part from this church. You're called to step out and trust the Lord in the same way to provide leadership, to innovate, to take initiative. We are a church, by the way, that loves that. We are open to ideas and and, and initiatives. So, So bring them. And we're really open to everybody in that. But in particular, for pastoral leadership, we understand that as male leadership. And we trust young men, you will step up. Young ladies, come alongside and, and empower the ministries of the church. Empower these guys in what they're doing. Come up with your own ideas too. There's many arenas where it's very appropriate for, for you to take leadership. But don't take it from the men. Let them be what they're called to be. In your giftedness, you might be way more competent but defer to God's design for His glory. There are so many applications to this, guys, as the band comes up. just want to encourage you to reflect on these truths. Guys, this is good stuff. This is God's design. He calls us to reflect His glory, to image His glory as male and female, to do that together in a complementary way. To work that out in marriage in different ways. To work that out in the church in different ways. And in life in general. So just as we kind of transition into music and then communion, I just encourage you to just think, is there one way you can respond to this truth? There's probably a thousand. And it may be little things. It may be something big. You know, maybe guys, you're tempted to pornography and God's spoken to you through this and you realize, I need help. There's help here. It's a common struggle, but there's grace to overcome it and to change how you treat women as a result. Certainly ladies, if you struggle with that as well, there's help. It might be just thinking, you know what, I I just need to take a little more initiative. Or I need to just step back and pray for the the men in my life, the guys that I need to support. Maybe I need to Participate more. So there's all sorts of ways. Let's just take a, a, a minute um, before we take communion, before we sing, just to consider that, how we can respond to, to God's work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You.